Let's turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. We will read the whole chapter. Verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with the purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as full ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck. You will have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, 
The Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have been praising the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsim. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel of purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as full ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us your word and now we turn our attention to it and we ask our Father in heaven that you would cause us to hear what you intend for us to hear from this passage. Cause us to understand this chapter and Lord, we pray that we would have soft hearts and open ears that we would not be proud, but we would receive from you that truth that sets us free, that truth and that reality that actually is for our good and for your glory. Thank you for your word. Please minister to us through your word. Please change us. Please fill us with rejoicing as we think about how great you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have heard of the, ex- the expression, the idiom, the handwriting on the wall? You know that expression? According to the wordsmith Charles Funk, this idiom, the handwriting on the wall, it means a forecast of some ominous event, a warning of probable danger, right? 
the handwriting on the wall. It's a negative idiom. Something bad is going to happen. And usually people say this idiom in, in two different ways. They, after the problem happened, after the tragedy happened, they say, I should have seen the handwriting on the wall, right? If I had seen the handwriting on the wall, the evidence, the, the notification, the, the forecast or the warning, maybe this could have been averted if I had seen the handwriting on the wall. Or they'll say like this, I saw the handwriting on the wall, and so I, I did something about it and avoided the trouble, right? This is the two ways the idiom is used. This idiom originated from this chapter, chapter 5. And this story about God with, with the hand literally is writing upon the wall a forecast of destruction, right? A forecast of danger. And uh, Belshazzar's demise. And so it's a, this is a famous story and we get this famous idiom from it. And not only is this a famous story in the Bible, but this is actually a famous event in history. And there's a lot of history that has been written about the fall of Babylon. Because this chapter marks the fall of Babylon. Not only Belshazzar's death, but the end of the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of a brand new uh, rule over the earth. And so there's a lot of history that goes into this. A lot of professors and scholars study the fall of Babylon. And even ancient historians wrote a lot about the fall of Babylon uh, to the Medes and the Persians. And yet notice that in this chapter, even though this is such, a, in, such an important historical event in history, um, there's very little historical information in this chapter, right? There's some, and what we have here corresponds with the history that we know. But clearly Daniel's intention in writing this chapter isn't to give us a history lesson. Right? I mean, it's a really important histor- historical moment, but he's not writing it just to give us a history lesson. This chapter, it, Daniel intends to convey a moral teaching. That's the point here. There's a little bit of history, but the point is not history. The point is a moral teaching. And it's this moral teaching that I hope we're going to see this morning. I mentioned last week that chapters 4, which we looked at last week, which is Nebuchadnezzar having the mind of a cow and eating grass for seven years, that, the, that chapter 4 and chapter 5 are very closely connected, more closely connected than any other chapter in the book of Daniel. And I'd like to point out how the important moral lesson is found in both of those chapters and how it's such an important lesson to the book of Daniel, not just to these chapters. Um, I'd like to share something I haven't shared yet about Daniel. The book of Daniel is written in two languages. How many of you knew that? That it, it wasn't just written in Hebrew, it was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And the Hebrew portion of the book of Daniel is chapter 1 and chapter 8 to the end of the book. So chapter 1, and what's nice about Daniel is that the chapters uh, mark off nice pretty nice divisions in the book because there's all these unique stories, right? There's how Daniel and his friends came to Babylon and then there's uh, the the first story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. Then there's a nice break into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there's a nice break into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's madness. And then there's this nice break into Belshazzar's uh, The Writing on the Wall. And so the chapters in the book of Daniel do give us a good good break in the story. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 is written in Hebrew. 
And in the middle of these Hebrew sections, is uh, chapter 2 to chapter 7, is all written in Aramaic. Daniel changed in his writing. And we might think it's strange to do that, but this is actually um, a style of writing that wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. So basically, we need to understand that the author of a work that is like this is writing very intentionally. He's, he's not just writing words intentionally, but even the form of his book is intentional. He's sandwiching this Aramaic section between the two Hebrew sections. And scholars of Daniel have, have all pointed out that the Aramaic section of Daniel has a very, very clear chiasm. And you remember what chiasm is? It's a form of writing where if you really want to make an important point, you write in such a way that that point is central to the story, central to the structure of the book. So a chiastic structure would be you write, you write about something that represents uh, theme A. After theme A, you write about something that represents theme B. Then you write about something that represents theme C. Then, because you really want to emphasize that the point is theme C, you write another section of theme C, then another section of theme B, then another section of theme A. It's like a pyramid. So here we have a pyramid structure in the Aramaic section. Notice, chapter 2 gives us a prophetic apocalyptic vision, doesn't it? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of these kingdoms that are ruling, head of gold, uh, silver, uh, arms, bronze, belly and thighs, iron feet and legs and then finally that that uh, statue is replaced by the kingdom of God right so you have this apocalyptic vision in chapter 2 what do you find in chapter 7 you also find a prophetic apocalyptic vision that basically tells the same thing you have four creatures right in chapter 7 and it's the four kingdoms that are replaced by the kingdom of God so, in the Aramaic section, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are essentially the same theme. What's chapter 3 about? Chapter 3 is what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they're in big trouble. They're, they're in really bad trouble with the government. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to destroy their life and throws them into a fiery furnace and God miraculously delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's theme B. Okay, what's chapter 6 about? What's chapter 6? We haven't got there, but Daniel in the lion's den, right? So Daniel gets in big trouble with the government. Daniel's thrown into a lion's den, and Daniel is miraculously delivered by God, who sends an angel. So you see that the prophetic map of what God's going to do in history and replace everything, all the human rules of the kingdom of God, you've got his people are miraculously delivered by him, and then we come to chapter 4, and what do we have there? We have Nebuchadnezzar's madness. Why does he go mad? Because he doesn't acknowledge that God rules. And so God humbles him. Chapter 4, the theme here, theme C, is God punishing or humbling the proud. That's what chapter 4 is. What's chapter 5? Same thing. In fact, it's explicitly the same thing. Daniel comes in and says, Belshazzar, your dad didn't get this lesson, and now you're doing the same thing, and God's going to do the same thing for you. And it's a, it's a theme of judgment, right? It's a theme of destruction and judgment on the proud. So here's the chiasm that Daniel has in this Aramaic section. 
And all of those things work together. If you put them together, essentially what you have here is that God has a, a program for history. God is in control of all of history and he has a program. He knows what's going to happen in the future. In fact, he's controlling it all. And the end of it all will be the establishment of the kingdom of God. And God's people will be miraculously delivered by him and the proud will be judged by God. And he really wants us to know that the proud will be judged by God. This is a very important thing. That those who don't see this, those who don't acknowledge that God's in control, those who don't see that God's ruling in heavens, they're going to be judged. This is really an important lesson in the book of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar's letter in chapter 4, where he is acknowledging this, this is a foretaste of when the entire world will humble themselves before God and acknowledge his rule, his goodness, his reign. This is what chapter 5 is also about, this important lesson of his judgment. So this morning, I'd like to break this chapter down into three points. And this is what we'll look at, this important lesson. So first of all, we'll look at the pride of man the pride of man, secondly, the judgment of God, and thirdly, the way of salvation. Number one, the pride of man. Since Belshazzar here, and what's going on in the book of Daniel, is really a type of what's going to happen in the future, we need to think of this chapter in a universal kind of sense. We not, don't just think of it as this happened to Belshazzar, but he is a type of what's going to happen to the whole world. This chapter shows us Belshazzar's pride, and it's an example of the problem with human beings. Okay, right? Belshazzar is a, is a pro, shows us the problem with all human beings. What do we find Belshazzar doing? We find him feasting. Now, there's nothing um, inherently wrong with feasting, right? Thank, thank the Lord. <laughs> but this feast was evil. And it was evil for two reasons. First of all, uh, historically speaking, even though it's only implied here in this chapter since that night he was slain, um, historically we know that Belshazzar was feasting while his city was surrounded by the Persians. So you have to imagine that the Persian army is literally uh, around Babylon right now, okay? And in this context, Belshazzar is feasting. Even the secular historians say Babylon was feasting on the night that it was taken. And Belshazzar is at ease, and he's at ease because he's trusting in his high walls, which Babylon was famous for, his abundance of food that they, even the secular historians say that they had stocked up for like 20 years of food there so they weren't afraid of starving to death in the siege and also Babylon has a river running through it and so they got plenty of water and so Belshazzar is even though surrounded by the Persians he's at ease because he's trusting in his wealth his food his water his preparations he's trusting in himself and his gods and he's not trusting in God he doesn't believe that the most high God could allow his city to be conquered that night, right? It just—it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen because we—we are prepared and we've taken precautions, and there's nothing that can happen. Many people are like that in life. A lot of people 
do not recognize that God is able to bring you down anytime, anywhere, whenever he wants, right? Just like Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says he had the power to keep alive or to destroy whoever he wished, so can God. And you know, brothers and sisters, that many people in life don't acknowledge that about God, right? And they take all the precautions they can to keep their lives going. And they say, because I've done this, and because I've done that, and because I'm taking care of myself, everything is going to be well and I can rest. But God, Jesus even told a parable like this, and says, you fool, this night you're dead. This very night, God has numbered your days and you're done. And that's what God thinks about people who, who do not acknowledge His rule and His reign over them. They're careless before Him, trusting in false hopes. This is defiance against the Almighty God. Belshazzar should have known that God could have brought him down. And Daniel, when he dresses him, uh, takes it for granted that he should have known, right? He says, you knew all this. You knew that the Most High God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. You knew that Nebuchadnezzar had this prophecy that the Persians were going to take over. You were in defiance against God. You weren't believing these things. You were defying the truth. So the second thing is, not only is he at ease trusting in himself, secondly, it is a feast of pride, and this is seen in him bringing the vessels out of the temple. This is not him just getting some random idea, hey, let's get, these cups are not as fancy as the one that I saw in the, temp, you know, in the temple of our gods, let's go get them. Remember those Jerusalem vessels? Let's get those. We would miss the point. This is him shaking his fist at God. This is him knowing the past of what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, knowing the prophecies about the Persians, knowing that God rules, and him saying, uh, I am going to praise my gods and intentionally attack Yahweh. I'm going to intentionally rub, put my fist in his face and, and defy him and tell, tell everyone exactly what I think about this prophecy and that he could take down the walls of Babylon. I'm going to tell, let everyone know. And so it's an attack on Yahweh. For Yahweh had a reputation in Babylon at the time, not only from the Jews that lived there, but from Nebuchadnezzar himself, who gave that declaration, his own father. Daniel tells us in, in verse 18 to 22, when he addresses him, that Belshazzar is doing the very same thing that Nebuchadnezzar had done, that he did not acknowledge the Most High even after repeated warnings and repeated uh, revelation that was given to him. Although Nebuchadnezzar, of course, looked over his kingdom when he was prospering, right? And he said, all of this I have built. Now Belshazzar is looking out at the Persians and he's boasting about his survival. You know, God can't bring me down. In case you think it's just an ancient problem, remember the uh, famous example of this in, in more recent times would be with the Titanic, right? Not even God can sink this ship when it's made in voyage it sunk, right? Amazing. Belshazzar still thinks that Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels out of Jerusalem. And Daniel corrects him and said, no, Nebuchadnezzar did not take the vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, the vessels in Jerusalem. God was judging Israel through Nebuchadnezzar. See, Israel had a covenant, has a covenant with God, and they broke it. 
And God used Nebuchadnezzar. He gave it into their hand. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have any power whatsoever. Just like Jesus said to Pilate, when Pilate said, I have the power to crucify you, he said, you don't have any power, but what's given to you? This wasn't the first time God gave the, the vessels in the temple to Israel's enemies in judgment. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6, the very Ark of the Covenant was taken. You remember this? So Israel goes to battle with the Ark of the Covenant and God allows his Ark to be taken. Of course, the Philistines think, hey, our gods are way greater than the Israelite gods. They brought up the Ark and we still beat them. And then, of course, before too long, they're sending the Ark back, saying, you can have it back now. <laughs> right? Well, you know, it, it, this God's too great for our gods. So he's destroying us. <laughs> and then the Ark comes back to Israel and thousands of Israelites are slain. God gave the vessels to Nebuchadnezzar because God is not weak. God is not defeated. And God is a judge who judges the wicked. And woe to those who don't acknowledge that God is in control. Look at verse 23. The very last thing Daniel says to Belshazzar. The God in whose hand are your life breath. Think about it. How many of you need breath to live? You need breath to live, right? Guess what? Your breath by which you live is in the hand of God. It's in His hand. It's like He's literally pumping you. And He can stop it any time He wishes. You have not even acknowledged this. Even though your life is in His hands. The breath that you breathe and all of your ways, everything you do, everything you are, all the things that you've accomplished, it's all because of what God has allowed. And He can take it away at any time. You have not acknowledged your God. Now that sounds like a similar passage in the New Testament, doesn't it? Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And they turned, they professed themselves to be wise, and they became fools, and they, made, they turned the glory of the incorruptible God into uh, images of corruptible man, beasts, and other things. Why, why would they do that? Even though they knew God, even though they know that everything they have is from God, that He's the Creator, that they're created, that their very life is from Him, this isn't just Belshazzar's problem, this is all mankind's problem. They don't acknowledge God. Why? Because of pride. They would rather turn to gods they make up in disobedience to God and in defiance against God, even though all the evidence is there, because men do not want in pride to glorify the Almighty God who holds their breath in His hand. People are so proud they don't want to acknowledge that God's in control. They want to, they'll, they'll worship gods that aren't in control, but they don't want to admit their wisdom has been foolish, that they are weak, that they are nothing. Because this is what acknowledging God means, Right? You acknowledge him that you're not great. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to boast about all of his Babylon that he made. The, the, my strength, my glory. No. Why did you do that, Nebuchadnezzar? I wanted to. All men are by nature proud. And the Bible tells us they do not fear God. 
Doesn't mean only, uh, they may not be kings like Belshazzar, but we all have the same heart. There is none who fears God. Secondly, the judgment of God. We're looking at a type of a universal truth. Belshazzar is, a, is a, an example of the pride of man, of mankind. And this judgment upon him is also an example of God's judgment upon mankind. Because of our pride and our disobedience and our defiance against God who created us, we are all, the Bible tells us, children of wrath. We are all children of wrath. In verse 5 and 6 of our chapter, we have the word suddenly, and God suddenly uh, acts, and everything changes. All of a sudden he was at ease, all of a sudden he was having a good time, and now what we see is his face, all the blood leaves his face. Whereas he used to walk around fine, fine to go get his food on the table, now he can't even move, his hips are out of place, and his knees are knocking. What happened? God acted. God can change a man's carelessness into fear in an instant. God does not always act slowly. Now, he doesn't always act quickly either. But he can act quickly. And that very night Belshazzar was slain, the very night that God said, you're in big trouble, he died. God can suddenly destroy. It's not the first time that God wrote with his finger. When was the first time he wrote with his finger? Mount, Mount Sinai. When God, it says in the book of Exodus, by, the, by his very finger, inscribed in stone the Ten Commandments of the Ten Sayings. When God wrote down the law of true worship and true neighborliness. And there he required that mankind obey this, or that his people obey this, which is an expression of what goodness, what true worship and neighborliness. God was then requiring, by his finger, obedience. And now by his finger, God is not requiring anything from Belshazzar at this point. He's writing, not saying, this is what you need to do. He's saying, you're done. You didn't do what I first said. You're done. You don't always get a second chance and a third chance. and a It doesn't just go on and on forever. This is how God is. He's a God of judgment. And for people, their time is up. This is the time for judgment, for violating righteousness. And Belshazzar is petrified. He is as scared as a man can be, and he is as scared as all the wicked will be on the day of judgment. Can you imagine how terrifying that day is going to be? Not just when one man's face goes pale and all his knees knocking, but when all the wicked, all the unrighteous who finally are standing before God and God's now bringing his judgment upon them. Imagine how terrifying that is going to be for them. Here's a picture of it. Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall and he knew it was a bad, bad omen. He knew he was in trouble. How do you know it was bad? He didn't even know what it said. Right? It could have been like, hey, I just wanted to join the party, you know? <laughs> How do you know it was bad? Because all along he knew he was in defiance, right? 
He knew something was wrong. His conscience was, knew that what he was doing was evil, but he thought he'd get away with it. Then when he saw the hands, he knew it was up. He knew he was in trouble. And so it is today. Men will be, men and women with the wicked will be afraid. But now they know that something is wrong. Now those who disobey God deep down, although they don't want to show it on the surface, they know that they're in defiance. The poet Omar Khayyam wrote this line. I thought this was a helpful stanza. The moving finger writes and having lit moves on. Nor all thy piety nor wit shall roll back to cancel half a line nor all your tears wash out a word of it. What God has written, He has written. And it doesn't matter how much you're afraid at that point and how much a man cries. At that point, the Bible says there is no more place for repentance. You can hear Belshazzar screaming for his magicians to come in. We should at this point not expect much uh, as we've seen their track record. (laughs) Why couldn't they read it? Uh, It was Aramaic. The mene mene tekel you parson is not a heavenly language, okay? It's not God writing some heavenly divine words. It's simply Aramaic. And so we might ask the question, why couldn't they read it if it was Aramaic? And um, the best explanation that is usually given is that ancient Hebrew and Aramaic have no uh, vowels. And so it would just be the consonant. So we read it mene, but it would just be mn. If we transliterate it, it would just be mn. TKL and uh, PRS. And the thing is, when you don't know the vowels, what you need usually is some context in order to understand, because it could be many different vowels put into there. So it could be many different things. You've got to have some sort of context to know what is really being said, and they didn't know what the context was. Kind of like Wheel of Fortune, you know? <laughs> the letters are there, but... You sometimes don't know what it is because it could be a whole bunch of things until it gets a little bit more and they, oh, now I know what it is, right? I got some context. Daniel knew the context. The queen mother comes, the queen comes, which would be Belshazzar's mother, comes to Belshazzar and tells him about Daniel, who's obviously not in the service of the king anymore. At this point, Daniel is about 80 years old. He's, he's lived almost his entire life in exile, but yet still believing in God and trusting in God because he knows the word of God. He's now reverted to his old name. He hasn't converted to the paganism. He still believes that God is great and God is the judge. That's what Daniel means. God is the judge. We see the irony of human wishing in the queen's words to Belshazzar, O king, live forever. You're dead tonight. (laughs) Live forever. That didn't do any good. We see a recurring figure, don't we? Uh, in all of these stories, or many of them, the magicians have no knowledge, but Daniel, because of the Spirit, is able to bring wisdom, right? That's a recurring theme over and over and over again that Daniel wants us to see. And what it shows is that it shows the uselessness of human wisdom and human religion in times of crisis. That's sort of the point. You know how there's a really big crisis going on, these guys can't do anything about it, but the one who knows God can. The one who knows God has wisdom. When there's crisis, human wisdom falls apart. Look at verse 17. 
when Belshazzar offers him all these rewards, it just feels empty, doesn't it? I mean, Belshazzar really was going to give him, but we know in the context of the story that he's toast, and it just doesn't mean anything. Third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon is a pretty big deal. Wearing purple means royalty. Gold necklace signifies some sort of authority. And while well, most men would say, wow, this is a big deal, we, the readers of this chapter said, behold how empty these human rewards are. Nothing matters at all except to be right with God. Belshazzar, you don't even realize what's going to happen to you here tonight. All of your money, all of your authority is nothing. And Daniel does not speak to Belshazzar as a sage. He speaks to him here as a prophet. He gives him the word of the Lord, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, well, you know, Belshazzar, uh, let me just give you my, my opinion on this. And um, He says, basically, this is what God thinks about you. This is, this is your sin. He's speaking almost like Nathan to David, right? And you have not acknowledged God. This is how the Christians are all, the Christian churches to speak to this world. Right? We're not, we're not to come before them and give them, give them our opinions also. You know what I think? I just think that, you know, probably you should acknowledge God more in your life. We have a prophetic message as well to this world and say, you have not acknowledged God, even though He has revealed Himself to you. The God who holds your breath in His hand. And in verse 24 and 28, Daniel gives the meaning of the inscription. Here's one thing we learn from this. God is very economical with his words, isn't he? He didn't write a paragraph. He didn't write a book. He wrote three words. He's very economical with his words, isn't he? God says what is sufficient, and then it is our responsibility to heed it. The ball is now in our court. Mene, mene, twice for emphasis. This is a really, really important point that he wants to get through. Mene means, in Aramaic, numbered. So if we were to transliterate this, or if we were to translate it, numbered, numbered. Now, that's all it says, but Daniel is based, he now interprets, he says, Belshazzar, God has fixed your time. You think that you're in control and your laws are going to protect you? God numbers your day. God is in control of your life span and God wants you, Belshazzar, and all the world to know that He is the one who numbers your days. You can plan to go on a big trip in a month and if God, hasn't, if God has numbered your days before that, you're not going to go. That's why James tells us, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. God has fixed our days and Moses tells us in Psalm 90 verse 12, that it is wisdom for us to recognize that our days are numbered. How many of you do that on a regular basis? I highly exhort and encourage you to do that. On a daily basis, stop and do what Moses says and reflect upon the fact that your days are literally numbered. God already knows when the grand finale will be for you. He already knows it. It's not going to be sooner than that. It's not going to be later than that. Teach us to number our days, Moses said, that we might incline our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to know that 
Our lives are in your hands. Now, this is not necessarily bad news, right? For many of us, that's an encouragement. That means, hey, if, if God has numbered my days to die when I'm 88, I'm not going to die till I'm 88. This is good, right? Or if, I'm gonna, if he's numbered my days to die tomorrow, this is good. Because God is good, and he loves me. But if you are not his child, if you do not, if you are not uh, saved by Christ, if you are not reconciled to God, this is a bad thing. It, actually, I find there's two responses to this in this world. The, the people who love God and know God think it's great that God's numbered their days. The people that don't love God and know God just hate the fact that God's numbered their days. They, they don't like it. They're un- uncomfortable. I want to be in control. Scary. It is scary. It's bad if the next part is not in your favor. Tekel. Wade. Numbered, numbered, Wade. And Daniel reads this in his, and, and interprets this. You have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Now here's a common idea you can find throughout the Old Testament that God weighs you. God weighs you. Think, think about it when you stand on that scale. Maybe it's an electronic one. You stand on and suddenly you see what you weigh. Could you imagine if it wasn't physical weight it was measuring, but if it was righteousness? And you stood on it and unrighteous. Oh, man. You know? <laughs> Can you what would you have to weigh, morally, to stand on that scale for it to come up righteous? God judges our quality and our value, not physically, of course, but our moral weight. And the standard is righteousness which he has revealed to us in his law, that true worship, that true neighborliness. Righteousness, of course, in the ancient world, they wouldn't have electronic scales, so it would be more like a, they'd put, a, they'd put uh, the standard on one side, and then they'd put you on the other side, and hopefully it would balance, right? But if the standard goes down and you go up, there's big trouble. You have been weighed in the balances, Belshazzar. You have been weighed in the scales, and you have been found deficient. You, you step on that scale, and it comes out unrighteous. Everyone is weighed. Belshazzar's time had come, and he had been found deficient. But all of us are weighed. And all of us will have our time as well to give an account. Perez is the third. Now you might want to, you might wonder why is it you parsing in one part and Perez is another. You parsing is plural, Perez is singular. You is just and. Many, many tackle and Perez. Divided. So not only does God number your days, not only does God evaluate and weigh you in the scales to see whether you are righteous. God also then executes judgment upon you. How many of you have ever seen the statue of Lady Justice? Famous statue all around the world, Lady Justice. There's, a, there's three conspicuous things about her. One, she's blindfolded, right? So she doesn't, you don't get on the scales and, and God says, Oh, oh, I like you. You're, okay, well, because I, I, I like you, I'm going to be partial here and I'm going to... You know, I, I, it says unrighteous. We'll just 
we'll just overlook that because you and me are kind of tight here. He's bl- justice is blind. You get what you deserve. God is just and everyone will get what they deserve. She has in her hands the scales and what's in her other hand? A sword. And that sword represents that justice isn't justice if it just stands back and, and evaluates and says, you're unrighteous, you're righteous, you're not righteous, you're good, you're bad. It's only justice if after the evaluation, then execution. We don't just say you're guilty, we then do something about it. And God, the originator of justice, does something about Belshazzar's sin. Just what he revealed in chapter 2, the Medes and the Persians. It says, your kingdom is divided. This is the judgment. And it's given to the Medes and the Persians, just as he said would happen in chapter 2. When would that be? That very night. That very night, Babylon ended as an empire. And the Medes and the Persians came in. And God worked quickly. It also shows us that God doesn't always work by a direct miracle. But God is also in control of nature and nations and he judges people through them as well. He judged Babylon and Belshazzar through the Persians. Like Belshazzar, every one of us will be judged and given our due. It may be soon, it may be later, but sooner or later, register it in your mind, you will get what's coming to you. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? Of course, it's also an encouraging thought if you understand the way of salvation. And this brings us to our last point, the way of salvation. And while this story is not a story of salvation, just like Judgment Day will not be a day of salvation for many, yet when we take this story in the context of the book of Daniel, Daniel is not just writing this book and this chapter intending to destroy all hope, but he's intending to warn people. Because there is a way to see the handwriting on the wall, and there is a way to be saved, the Bible shows us. While the Bible talks much of judgment, it also talks much of salvation and of hope, because God wants to save And God in Ezekiel gives this cry to the wicked and says, Why will you die? You don't have to die. Okay? I'm laying this before you so you can be warned, but there's not not a soul that has to die. The Bible talks much about salvation and hope. But when we talk about salvation, we must be clear that everyone is weighed on the scales and found deficient. The Bible tells us that what the standard is that God puts on the scales, that standard is righteousness, true worship, true neighborliness. Which, what does that mean? What is true worship? What is true neighborliness? And to God, he tells us, that means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. Totally. And to love your neighbor just as you love yourself. And in light of this, the Bible teaches us, and our own consciences show us, that there are none righteous, no, not one. Amen? Now, that's a radical claim to make, Christians. 
Because most of the world doesn't make that claim. Most of the world thinks, put me on the scale and I'm a pretty good guy. Right? Judgment Day is going to be good for me because I'm good and he's good and we're all basically good. But the Bible says no. There are none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, not even one. And what you think is goodness isn't goodness. It is to love God with all of your heart, which none of us have done. It is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, which none of us have done. Who of, who of us has not been proud? How many of you can say, from birth to death, I've had, a, I've had a perfect track record of always acknowledging the Most High God, that my, my death is in His hands, and I give Him glory and honor, always. I am not defiant against Him. How many of you can say that you've not forgotten God? How many of you can say that you haven't exalted yourself against Him and others? How many of you can say that you have always feared the Lord? You have always obeyed His word. You have always loved your neighbor as you love yourself. Who of us can say that we haven't had eyes of lust? Who of us can say that we haven't stolen? Can anyone say that they have not lied or fallen short in their duties? None of us. We've been been weighed in the scales and found deficient. And the Bible tells us God is blind, He's impartial, and that there is punishment. And that punishment is death, and the Bible describes that punishment as as a lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever, and that that is our due. That is what we deserve. And that is what many people will receive. And our days are numbered. We've already been weighed and found deficient. The question is, when will that sword fall down on our heads? If I've already am guilty, how come God hasn't already sent me to hell? What would be the reason? His, the Bible teaches us of the patience and the forbearance of God because He wants you to be saved and He wants me to be saved. And that's a very beautiful thought, isn't it? Even though I'm guilty, even though I haven't feared him, even though I haven't loved him, even though I haven't revered him, even though I haven't obeyed him and I've been defiant, he's patient with me. He hasn't let the sword fall on me. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4, listen to what it says about God. After describing us as children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, and seated us up with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It says here, it qualifies God's mercy. It doesn't just say He's merciful. It says God is rich 
in mercy. It doesn't just say He loves you. It says He loves you with a great love. And it says, because of His mercy, His rich mercy, because of His great love, He gave us Christ to save us by His grace. Us. Don't forget who we are. Irreverent, deficient, guilty, vile. As we sang this morning, this is, this is one of the best news. This is the best news in the whole world, isn't it? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus of pardon received. Doesn't that make you glad? I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm the vilest offender often. Often I think to myself, my goodness, Lord, I feel like I'm the worst person in the whole world. But yet, He's been patient with me, and because of His great love for us, He has sent Christ. People say that God accepts you just the way that you are, and that's not true. God accepts you in Christ. And you come to Christ just as you are. There's no qualifications to come to Christ. Christ is there to save you just as you are. Come and be saved. Though you're the vilest offender, though you've been waving the scales and found wanting and deficient, though what you deserve is justice and that, that sword should rightly come down on your face, come just as you are to Christ and He will save you and God will save you and forgive you through Jesus Christ. God, the Bible says, made Christ to be sin for us. It is Christ that makes the difference, not us. It is Christ that steps into that balance. It is Christ that levels it through his death. Jesus, it says, died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He paid our debt. He died the death that we deserve. He had our sins laid upon him. And that sword of justice that, that should come down on us came down upon him, the one that it didn't deserve to come down upon. And he did it for you because he loves you. And he rose from the dead. And he invites you and, and, and accepts all who will come to him and be saved. And through faith alone, the Bible says, we are saved. Not through any of our works, not through any making ourselves right, but by faith alone, by trusting in him alone, we are saved. In order to do that, one must acknowledge their sin before God, realize they're deficient, and they need Christ. And they come to Him. And when you come to Christ, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, because of what He did for you, because that sacrifice had meaning to God, and because that sacrifice actually deals with your sins, whoever believes in Him steps onto that scale, and it does this little thing and pops up righteous. Can you imagine that any Christian here this morning, any of you, I can pick any, I can just randomly pick a Christian and say, come stand on the scale right now, you who believe in Jesus, and you get on there and not be ashamed. And what made the difference? Because you had a good week? No. It's just a good thing I chose Silas, you know. No. It is Jesus Christ and His sacrifice that takes away our sins that makes us righteous. That's what makes the difference. And dear brothers and sisters, on Judgment Day, all who believe will not be afraid. Our face won't go pale. Our knees will not knock. And the scale will be leveled and we'll have Christ to thank for it. 
And you know what the best part is? God isn't only very good at executing judgment and wrath. God is very good at executing blessing and giving the righteous the, the results, the, the, the fruits, the, what, the righteous, what is due the righteous. And God will not just not destroy you, but God will bless and give you all good things, eternal life with Him forever, fullness of joy at His right hand, pleasures forevermore, because of the righteousness that you have through Jesus Christ. And that should excite and inflame all of our souls. In closing, it is the cross, as we've said so many times, the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died for our sins, that shows us that God is love and that God is just. And it shows us his judgment against sin, but also his great love for the wicked. And God at the cross speaks sufficiently. He has spoken, and it is our responsibility to listen. And in a sense, the cross is the ultimate handwriting on the wall. That God, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, He set forth Christ for all the world to see on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And it's a handwriting on the wall. The cross warns you of judgment to come. The cross, you look at the cross and say, Whoa, God is serious about sin. But the cross also shows you that that place of curse and that, that place of sin and death signified by Moses with the snake on the pole, that's the place of hope. And you look to that and you trust in what God has done for you and in His great mercy and love, you shall be saved. We will either say, I should have seen the handwriting on the wall when it's too late. Or we will say, I saw the handwriting on the wall and I turned from my folly and I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I was saved. If, for Belshazzar, his time was up, but for us who are here, our time isn't up. And if you have not yet believed in Christ and put your faith in Him, then this is an opportunity for you today to do that. There is no reason to wait because you don't know when your day will end. Because your hand is in, your breath is in God's hands and He's the one that you are defying. And at any time, He has the right to take your life away. So we as a church invite anyone who hasn't believed and put their faith in Christ to do so today and be saved through Jesus Christ. He loves you so much that He's giving you this opportunity to be saved. He will level the scale for you. And if you have believed in Christ today, then we as a church... We rejoice together in the fact that you are saved, that we are saved together, that we will stand in the judgment unashamed, and that we will receive eternal life through the blood of Christ alone. When Christ returns to judge the world and deliver his people and to humble the proud, the proud, as we sing and as we're going to sing in this next song, Oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, faultless to stand before his throne.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom in time of crisis. We see the world all around us in defiance and pursuing clouds and vapor and thinking that they're righteous, ignoring your righteous standard. Lord, we pray that many people would turn and be saved. And we pray that your church, like Daniel, would speak to this world. You would use each of us to speak the truth to this world and to to warn them and to explain to them the cross. Explain the handwriting on the wall. We pray that many people would come to see you, Lord, and be saved. And we thank you for your great mercy and your rich mercy and your great love. We thank you so much for loving us irreverent, wicked people. Thank you so much, God, for caring about us even though we don't deserve it and for giving us salvation. I pray that during this entire Christmas season, Lord, and beyond it, we would, each of us, reflect upon this gospel and we would rejoice and give you the glory and the honor that you so deserve, Lord, for the great things you have done. Thank you for our time in your word, we pray. We praise your holy name, in Jesus' name, amen.